Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One Sports is your home for the Underdog Sports Network. Join Chris Horwadell and friends each week as they cover the biggest stories in sports with shows like Tales from the Association, the Underdog Sports NFL Show, and you're wrong and here's why. You can't rely on draft picks a lot of times with quarterbacks. There's four to five quarterbacks drafted in the first round that are complete busts. Check out all these exciting shows on the Underdog Sports Network every week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Sam Vecini, NBA draft and college basketball expert for The Athletic, and a lot has gone on. I mean, we're still early in the college basketball season, but we've seen, among many things, a change in the consensus number one player. We talk a lot about Zion Williamson and the other Duke players, and then the other big section of this is talking about Bull Bull. Sam just wrote a great piece on him, which is available at The Athletic, and so we go through strengths, weaknesses, some of what we've seen from him so far, and then breakout candidates, who's failing to live up to expectations and a lot of things. This is a great conversation, and it is brought to you by Simple Contacts. You can go to simplecontacts.com slash realgm20, the numbers two and zero, or just enter the code realgm20 at checkout for a $20 discount. BetOnline.ag, that podcast one promo code gets you a 50% signup bonus. And then our friends at TrueCar, great place to buy a new and used car. This conversation runs about an hour and a half. Lots of good stuff in here, different players, different situations, and hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, of course, man. I uh, had a nice little workout this morning. I'm coming to you right after that, and my my body and my brain are slowly but surely dying after this week. I just filed like 3,000 words on Bull Bull, so that, that's where we're at right now. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, my body is is struggling for different reasons, but we'll. I mean, but I, I want to give you the choice on where to start because I kind of see two big avenues with this. One is you just wrote that big piece on Bull Bull, and then the other one is just catching up on the Duke guys because I actually watched some college films. So we can. I, I want to. You're the guest. I want to let you choose which way we do this because I know they're both in the forefront of your mind at the moment. I think it has to be Duke, if only because that's what everyone cares about, right? Like they have the three best prospects in the entire country and like Zion Williamson being an alien. So I think that we probably have to start with Duke, even though like Bull Bull is super interesting. Yeah, I think that's probably a good call. And one of the storylines in the college basketball draft world since the last time we talked is, I mean, we've always known that the Duke players were going to be high on the board, but one of the, there was a, obviously it's ten, temporary at this point in time, but a reorganization in that now, not universally, but Zion Williamson is considered the best of their prospects and thus the best prospect in the draft. And he is one of the hardest players that I've had to to draw comparisons. And part of that is because he has characteristics of other guys, but they're so much stronger in certain ways in him that you kind of feel like you're making an unfair comparison. So I'll give an example. So like, to me, if you just took a picture of Zion Williamson, not any of the other stuff, to me, physically, he kind of has the the frame and the length and all that kind of stuff of, of Draymond Green, maybe a little bit, maybe Draymond Green. Dre has like, I want to say, 
four or five inches in wingspan on yeah, him. Yeah, and, that, and that's and that will eventually be important. Yeah, but what Zion? Ha- I mean, the Zion is you. So you take a guy who kind of looks like that if you're you know taking off your glasses, the little bit of fuzzy thing, and then puts like the greatest vertical leap for a guy that size we've ever seen mm-hmm. on it. And then, but also he doesn't have you know some of the other things that make Draymond Green special, and so. So I'm going there, but where I want to start is on the defensive end because I watched the Gonzaga game and I watched the first half of the Indiana game, and the guy defensively that Zion reminds me of right now is going to this is going to be a weird comp, but he reminds me of current LeBron James, and what I mean by that is when he part of it is scheme based, but part of it is just you know the way that young guys are. When he's engaged and when he's like, he identifies the problem defensively, he can get at it and st- and do, you know, take that away. Like he had a couple of ridiculous chase down blocks. He had a recovery block, which was just crazy. He got like to the other side of the rim and he has those type of plays, but you don't see it on a possession by possession basis the way that you do with some elite athletes. And there are a bunch of reasons why that might be happening. Some positive, so, some some that don't affect his draft stock, some that do. But I wanted to see what you thought about that, of, of a guy who can affect it, but doesn't always every time. So I think that it's important to note with Zion, first and foremost, that he is the youngest of all of the elite prospects other than uh, Sekou Dumbuya. Um, RJ is like slightly older than he is, even though RJ reclassified into the 2018 recruiting class to get to the NBA quicker. So Zion is incredibly young for his class, first and foremost. Like you can look at Quentin Grimes is pretty young. Like I said, Sekou is young, but I don't think Sekou's on these guys level. So I think that you have to remember that that plays a pretty significant role. And then additionally, his athleticism and his reaction time is what I look for most right now on the defensive end. Later on, I want to see him, like later on in the season, I want to see him be able to switch out onto guards and uh, be able to slide with like super quick players for a few slides and then maybe recover given what Duke's defensive scheme is. I I want to see him do some of that, but right now, I just want to see him react to the ball, go get the ball, and make action plays because that at least shows the engagement defensively that can portend uh, longer-term potential, right? For a player that, again, just turned 18, I believe, in July or August. So with Zion, I'm pretty okay with where the defense is right now. And in fact, I think that he has a chance to be a plus defender. The thing that will hold that back is the like hashtag low key thickness of it all. He's just so big. He's 285 pounds already. He's been putting on weight at such a rapid rate over the course of the last like 18 months. He went from like 240 at a NBA players uh, association camp in 2016. Would that be, I think it's 2016 up to now 285 in 2018. So I look at where he's at. I think that camp actually might have been 2017 now that I think about it. Um, where, where he's at now is a lot bigger than where he was just even a year and a half ago. And that could lead to some substantial questions in terms of his lateral quickness more than anything. I think he's always going to have that just like special leaping ability because that's just something that is alien to him and like that he can do and that no one else can do. Uh, it's just a special skill. 
And I, I just believe it's always going to be there until he turns like 26 or whatever. What I want to see now is I want to see him read and react and be there whenever he has to be there to make the crazy play. And that's a great point because no matter what your level of athleticism, that mesh point of instincts, ability to read plays and athleticism is going to create your limitations defensively, you know, so you can have guys like Marc Gasol who aren't super athletic, but can read plays pretty well and then thus can get there or Draymond Green, who we talked about before. And then you have other guys like Marquise Chris who have the athleticism, but can't read the play quickly enough to get there anyway. And there are lots of guys like that in the league too. And Zion, Part of it is the way basically college, this is kind of parallel to college football offense where college basketball defense is largely structured so that less talented people can do it because that makes it easier on the coaches and it makes it so that you're, you know, that you're team will win a bunch of games. So it can be really hard to evaluate these guys in an NBA context. But something I'm seeing more and more from Zion in those games, and again, this is a game and a half. I'm not saying these are definitive things. If you want to hear my full flesh thoughts on these guys, you're going to have to wait until April and May. But Zion, to me, when I watch him now, he looks a lot more like a center defensively than a four. And that isn't a bad thing in any way. It's just something as you conceive of him, because I think he's going to be better as a help defender, as a reactor, than as a switch guy because of the lateral quickness you talked about. Yeah, I think that it's it's so hard to say with Zion because it, it all depends on how you think his body develops. Do you think that he gets to an NBA situation and they kind of figure out what to do with his body. Like, can he be, can he be Draymond Green? If people remember Dre, he was like 260 in college and then dropped down to like 235 in the NBA, 240 in the NBA to be able to uh, really move defensively. How was that? How would that affect Zion? How would, you know, just being in a defensive scheme that kind of allows him to roam and be crazy kind of like for instance like what ben simmons does in philadelphia i think that could be a really interesting move for zion if zion can prove that he is capable of switching and being able to guard players that are smaller than him consistently he just has that reactivity he has that like special quickness uh in the way that he diagnoses something on the floor and then can, you know, make his exceptional athleticism react to it in such a quick, you know, rapid, uh, spectacular way oftentimes. So I'm very interested in the way that all of that kind of coalesces as he turns 20 or 21, let alone by the time he turns 23 or 24, which is hilariously five or six years down the road like he'll be on a second contract by the time he's 24 years old or 23 years old so like when i look at this it's there's just so much to there's so much that has to play out and i think that that's why i was so hesitant to have him at number one early in the year he's i think he's very clearly the number one prospect now especially after talking with nba executives and stuff but like early on like he's just such a different player he has so many different aspects of his game that we've never seen before in terms of the frame, in terms of the bounciness, in terms of uh, his ability to like get the ball and actually create with the ball in his hands. That His jump stop is the most unique gift I think I've seen uh, from a college basketball player in a long time. So like there are just so many little things that he does that nobody else does that I don't really know how his game matures. I don't really know how it ages. I just know that he is an unbelievable matchup problem right now who makes special defensive plays 
four or five times a game. Sometimes you're right. He does really kind of disengage a little bit and float a little bit, but it, it's all kind of there for him to just be this ridiculous matchup problem, especially as the game goes a little bit smaller. Like he can defensive rebound. He can protect the rim from the weak side. Like he can do, he can do a lot to play the five and like, I, I don't know how NBA fives guard him for the most part. And like, let alone fours, like, I don't know how most NBA fours guard him. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that as well. And what Zion, the, the player development side of this is going to be incredibly important. And you can play it a bunch of different directions, like just have him work on, you know, offensively kind of a guard skill set. And think maybe if he has to post up, you figure that out later. He attacks on switches that that's the model that I would go towards. And then defensively, it gets a little bit more complicated because the rules are often distinct. But when I was watching him in the Indiana game, what I was thinking about was how it would be great for him to go to a a team that doesn't really have a set player at either big man position. And so they could just kind of be flexible Mm -hmm. and move him into either one. Or you could say a team that has guys but just doesn't have anybody that's locked in for the future there. And when I was looking at the board, unfortunately, there aren't that many teams in that situation at the top. I mean, Atlanta, you could make that argument. John Collins is interesting, but we also don't know what position he is. But then, like, yeah. Phoenix, Phoenix has I, I actually really like the Atlanta fit. So do I. Phoenix has Aiton. Cleveland has Kevin Love. Chicago has Lowry Markin and Wendell Carter, which, if you had the three of those guys together, would be absolutely fascinating. And then, you know, Brooklyn has Jared Allen. And so it, it's going to be... Well, there's a there's an incredible fit I think for everything that is Zion Williamson uh the the spectacular marketability of him the fit on the floor the roster every like I think the Knicks are an incredible potential fit for Zion Williamson well yeah I mean you put him next to Porzingis and yeah. a lot of things open up because then if Zion's jumper never gets all the way there you're still the other team is probably still putting their second best defensive big on him because that's how good Porzingis is. And then defensively, both of those guys are kind of amoebas in the sense that we don't know exactly what they are, but they but part of that is because they do traditional center stuff well and they do non-traditional center stuff well. So like that would be oh yeah, I would absolutely love that fit. Now that would put an even greater onus on the Knicks to get a point guard that can actually run stuff. But that was that was going to be an issue anyway. So right. it, yeah, I, that would if I were to pick one place that I could choose for him to go of the reasonable options, that is what it would be for me right now. I mean, because yeah, that would open up a lot of things, and because the Knicks have so much cap space, they could go into the off season knowing, okay, this is what we have to do, and also they might get a better free agent because hold, they could say like, oh my god, I get to play with these these two guys, and that would be really exciting. So yeah, that I, I totally get it. Can you imagine Kemba, Zion, and Kristaps? Like that would be, I would become a Knicks fan. I think if that would happen, like you put Kemba back in New York, uh, you put Zion Williamson there, you have Kristaps come back from injury. That would be, they would immediately be one of the most fun teams well, in the NBA. I mean, just think about the high pick and roll that you're going to involve one of those two big men. And then the other guy is just on the opposite side of the action. So if you help off him, you're getting shellacked in one way or another. If it's Zion, you're probably getting shellacked by a guy getting run through in the lane. If it's Porzingis, it's either an open three or it's going to be something else that'll lead to points. And that's something 
that, you know, comes up with the Sixers, it comes up with some other teams is, can a player be good enough? Do they have a skill set where they can be away from the primary action and still provide value? And that's actually why those two together would be fascinating, because they absolutely do. Yeah, I mean, you throw, like, you throw any wing with those guys. Like, you, you don't, if you have those players there already, it puts the onus on you finding a good wing it's still important because wing play is arguably the most important thing other than lead guard play you can find in the NBA today. But like, it's a lot easier for you at that stage because you have your offense. You can find high end three and D wings and like those guys are easier to find than your stars. You already have your potential stars that fit really well on the floor together. The Porzingis and Zion fit would just be like, it's, it would be like a supersized version of the Julius Randall fit that I think I've talked about with the Knicks for months upon months now. Like if the Knicks end up getting the number four overall pick or something, or let's say that they even get better and they end up at like eight and they take John Morant or Darius Garland. I honestly think that like the position I would prioritize most, like I'd probably want to go pay Julius Randle like 15 million a year. Cause I think that that fit is unbelievable with Porzingis because he can shore up Porzingis's weakness on the defensive glass. He can be a heavy switch defender and you can switch around Porzingis one through four. Porzingis accentuates his inability, although it's improving apparently to shoot from distance a little bit. You'd have grab and go guys one through four with the Knicks. It's just like, I think that that type of player is the perfect player to fit next to Porzingis. Hopefully it's Zion, but if it's not, I mean, I, I think Julius Randle's like the perfect guy to fit there too. Something I had in my notes that I wanted to ask you about with Zion is his touch around the basket, other than obviously like highlight dunks and all that kind of stuff. Like it feels like there's room to grow there. Now I'm never with an 18 year old player going to say like he, he can't get better there, but it is, it's lower than I think I want it, at least in the small sample that I've seen. Is that something you've noticed? His touch around the basket, it's like layups and floaters. And like when, when there's somebody there and he can't really go through them, it feels like, it feels like they just end up bouncing like a little bit, a little bit far, or, you know, that, that sort of thing. It's not, I don't think it's catastrophic, but I, I do notice it. Like, I'm like, oh, that was a good contest and he missed. And then it happened again. Like, and Gonzaga had a bunch of different guys that could get into the lane and just be there. And so there were a couple times like that. And, you know, it might just be that in the NBA with the improved spacing, it won't be a problem. And because teams play defense differently, but I, I, I want wanted to see your thoughts on it because you've obviously watched a lot more of him than I have. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that that was probably his worst game. I think it's the only game where he's shot below, like, 70% from the field, let alone 50%, which I think he was, like, 8 for 17, 8 for 18 or something in that game. The thing that I think he does really well is because he can jump so high and his hang time is as ridiculous as it is, uh, he changes the angle really well for defenders to, uh, like, defenders go up in a straight line and he can't go right through them. Uh, he is pretty good at finding angles like for finger rolls for instance like under their left arm and then either they come down and hack him or he just kind of goes around them and it's okay that way but i think that you're you are on to something there that his touch isn't the most incredible thing you will find it's not like some outlier skill it's probably about average in terms of his touch the basket Two other things quick to mention with him. We have two other Duke guys and then a bunch of other guys to talk about too. Um, one, his he had a couple of nice passes in the Indiana game, and that was yeah. really encouraging. Like he had this one behind the back one. It was a little bit too slow, but it was a, a, the, the right read, and you don't see guys even think of that pass very often. And yeah. then the other, and then like two plays later, he threw. He was driving. 
and threw a pass to Reddish in the opposite corner. And that's not a play that front court players make very often. Usually when they're driving, they're like, I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving. And I was really impressed with that because something you're, you're, you're always trying to with these young guys, especially when I'm dealing in a small sample here, you're trying to get a sense of their like basketball IQ, the way they read the floor. And even though that's far more important for a, a one or a primary ball handler than it is for a four or a five, it still gives you like that to me, I can use those moments to get a sense of whether they're going to be able to read plays defensively and all those kind of things. And it was very encouraging to have him play with his head up and to understand that the attention he's drawing is going to create opportunities for others. Yeah, I think that that's absolute. He's a good passer. He's unselfish. Um, he is. That's always been a skill set for him. He's always been capable of being a really good passer. Particularly, I do think he is probably a slightly better passer standstill than he is on the move, but he can do it. He's getting there to the point where like he'll drive in, he'll do that jump stop that covers like 18 feet of space somehow. And, like I want to see Zion in like the long jump competition in the Olympics after watching him jump stop this year. It's the most ridiculous thing. And then he'll like stop and survey the court and he'll hit like a little dump off toward the basket like with Jack White or something. But I, I do think it is a little bit still more of a standstill skill for him than a than like a passing on the move where he's going to make a play with the ball in his hands, stop and then like kick out or dump off like for an easy layup or a three. The uh, the other skills here that I think are we have to talk about the jump shot with Zion too, right? The Zion jump shot is one that scares me a little bit, I would say. He has improved it markedly over the last six months. What he's done is he's in most shooters angle their feet directly toward the basket. He has started to angle his feet at about like a 45 degree angle uh, away from the basket. But his big problem as a shooter was always that his elbow would get out of alignment. He would flare his elbow and it would lead to like left to right movement and it would lead to a pretty flat jump shot. Now what you're seeing is because he's made that adjustment with his feet, his elbow gets more underneath the ball and gets in a better uh, alignment with the rest of his body. And I think that he's actually going to be a pretty decent shooter now. Like I know he's two for 10 from three so far, but he's shooting 66% from the line, which is an improvement on where he was in high school. Overall, I think he's actually really, really good. He's, he's going to be a shooter at some point. They can at least knock down like 33 to 35% from three, which I think is all that he really needs. Yeah. I think it's always going to be the question of, can you force somebody to stick with him out there? And, and when I watch Zion, I think that he'll get to that point. He might not get far beyond that where it's like a huge value add, but there's a lot of value to just that, to getting to 33%, 34, somewhere in that range. And so I, I haven't watched enough to, to have a definitive opinion, but that's positive for you. The other thing that I wanted to mention with him is as we talk about these positional distinctions, Zion is, and, and I'm not criticizing him for this because every single 18 year old is this way, other than like Julia Logafor. Actually, Julio's bad at one of these things is getting better at the like stereotypical NBA big man stuff. So that's like setting big screens, getting early seals, whether your guy is, you know, like sized or smaller. He actually had one beautiful early seal in the Indiana game. I think it was a, a like a two or a three got on him and he just put that guy into the basket. And it just takes time. I mean, that's something with coaching. And I've, I've talked before about the idea of teaching guys small small player skills early and then big man skills late. And so getting into all those little elements and making contact on guys that are trying to run through the paint and all that. And then I know the freedom of freedom of movement stuff might end up running into that. But 
if he can if he can pick up and do the little things right, Zion could be an even more dangerous player because those are really the things that that can separate somebody with a elite athleticism as much as it's not going to define his career. Yeah, and what I would say to to that extent is that he's apparently a super coachable kid. I've yet to hear a bad word about him personally as like a dude that is a problem in any way. He like if you ever see him speak, he's a very very nice, very courteous, uh respectful kid. Like he will like if he knows who you are, he'll like refer to you as like Mr. even. Like he he's a really good nice kid as well. So I, I would imagine he will get better at screen setting like I mean, the only guy who's like last year, for instance, who I thought was a good screen setter, he's in this draft too, is Daniel Gafford. I think Gafford was a really good screen setter last year because he knew that he needed to make contact, be able to get the space to roll to the basket and get as high as he can to finish way above the basket. He's just a remarkably impressive player that like I think the small stuff's going to come along with him. Like I'm not real worried about it. That's great to hear that he's really coachable. I mean, that's such a definitive question for a player as physically talented as he is. Is is, is he going to put the work in? And can you? And what, what? Not necessarily about putting the work in. That's true too. But also, can you teach him the schemes and the systems? And will he take that time? Because the NBA is a big adjustment for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're LeBron James, who I still think is the most physically talented guy to come into the league in in my lifetime, or at least in my lifetime of watching basketball. Or I don't know somebody who's a lot less physically talented and so you need that no matter what and it's good to hear that from him let's go yeah, the, to sorry, well, the, the other thing too we should talk about zion is just he's the most incredible athlete like i've ever seen in my life for his size like lebron came into the league at what like 235 240 pounds and we were all like this guy's a man already this guy is just like a physical beast Zion, the difference between Zion and LeBron is like the difference between LeBron and like Chris Wilkes or like Darius Baisley to take someone from Rich Paul's agency. Like he is so – Zion is so, so large. He is a massive human being and like he can already post up and and just like bury guys in the post that are taller than he is. If you go watch the Kentucky game, you'll see like there's the opening play of the – of the second half is him just like burying Keldon Johnson. I think it might have been on the block because he, or it might have even been one of their bigs. It might have been PJ Washington. Now that I think about it, because he's just so much stronger than guys who are strong basketball players already. It, it, he's he's the most physically impressive player I've seen to enter the NBA in probably since I've been doing this. At least um, I can't remember anyone anyone who combined this explosiveness with this size. Yeah, that's 100% true. I mean, he he is a special, special, special physical talent. So much more to talk about with San Vicini, including the rest of the Duke prospects and the rest of the draft as it's looking right now. But first, a message from Simple Contacts. And Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription, reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes. And it's even better because you don't have to go to the doctor year after year just to renew your prescription for something you wear every day. You can do it on your own time in just a few minutes. That makes it vision care for the 21st century. And while it is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam, it is amazing how much of this process you can do from the comfort of your own home. I, despite wearing glasses, as many of you know, I went through all of their vision test materials because I, it's important to me to, to know the products that, I, that I'm working with. And I was incredibly impressed. You can do it 
from the comfort of your own home. You can renew your prescription, reorder your contacts in minutes. I did it from my house and they're so thorough with the test. Yeah, it's convenient. So you think, oh, there might be some trade off there. I screwed up the test. They messaged me to say, hey, you need to redo it. And then I did it again. I screwed up again, had to redo it. But that's my own fault. It was my own failings. I didn't follow the clear instructions they gave in terms of, I think it was something related to distance from the testing implement. And that's what you want. If you don't do something right, you want to make sure that they're trained people and you know they're designed by ophthalmologists and a licensed doctor reviews every test. So you want to make sure that everything's going right. Your eyes are incredibly important. And so check it out for yourself. You go to, you can do it either way. You can go to simplecontacts.com slash realgm20, or you can enter the code realgm20 at checkout. And the reason it has the number 20 in it is because you get $20 off. Easy to remember that way. So again, simplecontacts.com slash realgm20, or that promo code realgm20 at checkout. All the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, great experience. I can speak for it myself and vision test takes less than five minutes. It's awesome. So check it out again, simplecontacts.com slash realgm20 or that realgm20 code at checkout. Also want to tell you about our friends at TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it is time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation, moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you will get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today true cash offer, not available in all areas. Let's jump to his Duke teammates. I don't think we'll spend as much time on them, but RJ Barrett is is continually fascinating to me. And a big part of it, it was striking in both the Gonzaga game and the Indiana game, is that he plays with so much confidence. And at one point I wrote in my notes that, and and this is going to sound like a criticism because in some ways it is, but it's not entirely, is that it feels like he has very little respect for opposing defenders. And what I mean by that is it can go in two directions. One is, I'm way, but mostly it's, I'm way better than them. And so if you're right, then yeah, I mean, that totally works. I, I think about a guy like T-Mac as a good example of that, where if it's like, I can tear through these guys, I can get to the basket, I can I can do all this. And there are moments with RJ Barrett where you see that. I mean, it's also been true in international play. He's played against guys older than him. He's done a really good job. But then there are other moments where it's like, I'm better than this guy, and then I drive all the way to the basket, there are three guys there, and I still throw up the ball anyway. And that was a part of what happened at the end of that Gonzaga game. So both sides of the coin are there. Yeah, RJ is one of the toughest evals that I've had to deal with. Like part of me just kind of assumed that it would all work in college because he's bigger, stronger, more athletic than most guys in college. But we we have seen some flaws here. No question. Like he has been a pretty selfish player. Like I'm pretty okay just like saying that uh, RJ Barrett has been kind of selfish throughout the course of his college career. Like he is – missed 83 shots so far and 
Zion Williamson has taken 90 shots. Like the, the amount of shots that he is taking is pretty remarkable. And I think that it is not indicative of the talent on his team where he has four other top 20 prospects, including two other top three prospects surrounding him. And it's frustrating additionally because he's a really good passer when he wants to be like he is genuinely a very, very good passer who can pick out dimes with ease. The fact that he keeps just plowing into the lane and not looking for his teammates and trying to go up. It's, I like to see that. I like to see the aggressiveness and the, the power that he plays with, the toughness. He's physical. He embraces contact. Like he gets to the foul line a ton, obviously. Um, he, he really is like a special player in many ways, but he needs to have more awareness of the situation and of what's going on around him because he's not Kobe yet. Like <laughs> I understand that like he wants to be that kind of player, but when you're 18 years old, it's really hard to be that guy, um, even playing against college guys. Like it's really hard to not rely on your teammates, basically. So the fact that he's taking 38% of Duke's shots when he's on the floor, despite the fact that he shares the floor with Zion Williamson, Cam Reddish, and Trey Jones like all the time, plus like Jack White's a good shooter too, that's ninth in the country right now. That's That's too many shots. He needs to – be more aware of what's happening around him on the floor. Right. And it's it's also bizarre that, I mean, as talented as Barrett is, obviously, he's a, he's a player that Duke goes after. But when you sign up to be a part of a collection of elite individual talents... The, the Brotherhood. The, the brotherhood. brotherhood. You always think, okay, if that's what I'm getting into, that's how I'm going to approach this. And, you know, you want to make the experience as good for everybody as you can. And it seems like R.J. Barrett... At, at a lot of the moments that I've seen him so far in, in college, this was not necessarily true when he is Team Canada stuff or at the Hoop Summit, is he's kind of treating it like he's at a small school, but he's still a part of that brotherhood. It's like, and you're just saying, going, it does happen. It's not the first time, it's not the first time any player has ever been a little bit too happy with their own shots when they played with other good players. But it's just so weird because you're sitting there and you're going, I'm just, every once in a while, like in the end of that Gonzaga game when he's just driving into a thicket, you're sitting there going, Zion Williamson's right there. Like if, if you want to win, give him the ball. Like he's not touching the ball at all. You should you should be there. And it's also striking because it runs in direct comparison with Cam Reddish, who I'm not saying Cam Reddish is necessarily like totally unselfish or anything, but his game fits in with this brotherhood, the super team in college idea because of his jump shot and because he can function as a lower usage guy more so more willingly than RJ Barrett apparently can. I will say this. Cam Reddish has been a saint this year. <laughs> um, Cam was the first guy to sign and commit to Duke. And then RJ and Zion decide to join him. And I'm sure like, you know, he's friends with those two guys and he's really happy that them and, you know, even Trey as well. I think Trey even committed before Cam, but like, I'm sure he's ecstatic that these guys have come and they've become close and everything. But like Cam Reddish didn't sign up for this, you know, like Cam Reddish in high school was he played with Louis King, who's like another potential like first, second round pick is a one and done whenever he gets healthy at Oregon and like played like quote unquote, like point guard, like point forward type guy who brought the ball up the court every time and 
dominated play and is this like unbelievable body control athlete who can really attack the basket when he wants to. And, you know, his, his questions coming in were all motor related. He has all the skills in the world and he's even improved as a jump, jump shooter. He's shooting 43% from three right now. Cam Reddish is a six foot eight guy who can handle the ball. He's been pretty good defensively so far and he's shooting 43% from three right now. He has been awesome for Duke. He, you know, like he didn't sign up for this. I'm sure that he thought he's going to Duke to be the guy. And now he's like the third guy, maybe even the fourth guy, given the fact that Trey handles the ball a lot. And that's like got to be kind of tough for him. So I think Cam Reddish deserves a lot of credit for what he's done so far to make it work around them. I would say like a third of RJ's shots should probably go to Cam. Maybe like maybe a fourth of RJ's shots should go to Cam and then like an eighth should go to Zion or like something like that. Because RJ is just he, – he doesn't have – the shooting ability yet to be taking these shots and make them efficient because everyone knows that he's driving toward the basket. Now that is the book. He can drive right or left and he can Euro step and he can get around people. And he's an incredibly gifted player. But the fact that he's shooting 33% from three, like teams are relatively okay to leave him out there. Like he's a good shoot. Like I think he's probably an okay shooter um, long term. And I think that by the time he gets to year four in the NBA, he's probably gonna be like a 38% three point shooter. But right now it's not quite there yet though. And he doesn't have that awareness within his game yet to realize, hey, I'm a really good passer. I can make plays for my teammates. I can make life for my teammates easier beyond just the sheer presence of me being on the floor making my teammates' lives easier. I should do that more. And it's also an important test and calibrator for the NBA because very few guys that either think they are or are the best player on their college teams are the best players on their NBA teams. Like that's just right. not not the way it works. There are only 30 spots for that. And the guy that I started thinking about, and I'm not comparing to his players, but the player who went through the roughest adjustment that I can recall on that is OJ Mayo. And so Mayo had been the best player on his high school team. He was, you know, dominant on that USC team, which I think, you know, whether they overperformed or underperformed relative to the expectations a little bit weird. But then he got to the pros and he was still a good player, but he just never really got into that idea. And so that was why Milwaukee and a couple other teams thought about trying him as a sixth man and that didn't totally work. And RJ Barrett, I think, is more talented than Mayo. And remember how high Mayo went in that draft. Like, and, and he could have gone even higher had that season gone better. But unless Barrett is right, and basically he is this good, which is possible. I'm not I'm acknowledging that possibility. His game's gonna have to change a lot. And something that I like a lot about Duke's wing guys with with Barrett and Reddish is that at least they have like NBA size for their positions, which I think makes this a lot easier that they can, you know, so you can slot them in. And so especially if Barrett just becomes more willing to be a cog in the machine and Reddish already already is that. I mean, as you said, like the, the role that he's having versus what he expected is pretty remarkable. And I think that makes them more intriguing as NBA players, because then you can you can fit them into the systems a lot better than if these guys were like, like if Reddish was 6'5", or something like that. It just yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't work as well. But he's, you know, 6'8", six, 6'9", six, something in that range. And so you go, okay. Like, if he's guarding the other team's second best wing and just making these shots, and then if he can build more of his dribble drive game, there were moments where it, in the Gonzaga game where it looked like he had that a little bit, but the shots weren't falling. Like, if he can get into that area, then 
you have a player that can work with a lot of other different types of guys. And that's something that actually is an argument for Reddish over Barrett. So you have to yeah. kind of, you have to believe in Barrett more to, to take him because he, as of right now, he, you know, he's a square peg and you need a square hole. And that's a little bit of a different challenge that it can work. It often does, but you have to think about it. Yeah. What, what I'll say about Cam is you saw probably the worst game of Cam Reddish's like life against Gonzaga when you watch that game, right? Like Cam barely, like he didn't really even close that game against Gonzaga because Kay just like decided to sit him. And I was not a big fan of that. I went on Rob Doster's podcast and talked about that. Um, but it was a decision that happened and it is what it is. Cam, like he can already handle the ball. I, I'm not worried about him being able to handle it. I don't think NBA teams are. He's been around. He's been identified as a top five prospect in this class for years upon years now. I, I think that people just realize that he is he can dribble drive, he can handle the ball. The jump shot being what it is now is important. This is where your advanced scouting from events like Adidas Nations and Hoop Summit and he was at Eurocamp one year if I remember correctly. Uh this is where that's going to come into play because Cam is more of a spot-up guy right now on this Duke team because that's what the situation calls for. And he is doing it successfully in a way that kind of shows that he's a multi-talented, versatile kind of guy that is really impressive. And I think that he deserves a lot of credit for it. And I think that there's a real case to take him over RJ Barrett right now because uh, like, I feel like I've been kind of shitting on RJ Barrett the whole time that I've been on this podcast. And I, I don't really want to do that. I think he's an unbelievable prospect. You know, like he is, like I said, he is a really good passer. He does have so much polish to his dribble drive game. And you put him in more open spaces in the NBA and those driving lanes are going to open up even more for him. And he's going to be able to figure out his way around defenders in the NBA uh, as he gets older in a more substantial way. Like I, I think RJ Barrett's like basically a surefire, like 20 point per game score at the next level. Uh, he is, he is safe as can be in my opinion. Plus he's supposed to be like um, a hard worker who really wants to be great at his game. So I, I look at all that and I'm, I feel good about RJ Barrett and I don't mean to like detract upon him either because it's, you know, we're looking at the margins here and we're looking at uh, nitpicking guys a little bit too far, maybe in some cases, given that they've played seven games, but like RJ Barrett is, he's, he's an unbelievable prospect. Right. And with Barrett, the things that he doesn't do well right now are correctable. The reason why it's a little bit concerning is that some guys just choose not to correct it. And so you have to kind of balance those two things. But in terms of talent, I mean, he's incredible and, and he's proven it at different levels over the course of his career. I mean, the stuff that he's done internationally and I, off the top of my head, he was the best player on his international hoop summit team, you know, being on the international team helps, but still he, did oh, yeah. his job. Yeah, he was. And, and so you have those things coming together. And as a guy who's, you know, six, 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 seven, he should be able to defend his position. I think he can also get a little, he'll get stronger, just like every guy coming from college to the NBA. And he, I think he'll, he'll be able to do well on both ends of the floor. And yeah, as you said, it's it's good to get into that. And th there's a reason why he is as high in the draft as he is. It's just you get into this question, which is always so fun. And and you can make an argument about this with Zion about whether it, it's evaluating whether this guy is special enough to build a system around him and all that kind of stuff. And and maybe he'll just buy in. And so it'll be fascinating to see how that works out with all of those guys. Still plenty more to talk about with Sam Vecini on this college basketball season and draft class. But first, a message from our friend. 
friends at Bet Online. The holidays are upon us all, and that means the NFL, college football, NBA, college basketball are all heating up. One place has you covered for all the action. BetOnline.ag. Sign up today and receive your 50% sign up bonus using that promo code PODCAST1. P O D C A S T O N E. Got a lot of great matchups around in different sports. I mean, Alabama, Georgia is going on in college football, NBA, great games every single day. And what I enjoy about betonline.ag is you can use it in a couple different ways. You can use it to make a game. Let's say you were going to be home for a night and you weren't really, it wasn't your team or anything like that, but you were going to watch. It can, can certainly make that more interesting. Or if you think that you know something better than other people, it's a great way to, to show that out. So you can check it out. And if you go to betonline.ag and you use that podcast one promo code, you get a 50% sign up bonus. So it tells them that you came from us. You get that extra bonus, which is fantastic. And you can check it out. So go to betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. We can transition. Let's go to Bull Bull now. There are other guys at the top that we can talk about too, but Bull Bull is absolutely fascinating because another one of these, like, do you build the system around him? He, you, unusual combination of skills. And I mean, you started your, your piece for The Athletic with that clip of him where he blocked he blocked a three when it wasn't his primary assignment, dribbles the ball down the floor, and then gets into a, a, a mid-range jumper and just drains it. I think, was that game at MSG? Yes, it was. It was 2K Classic against Iowa, if I remember correctly. And, and you're just sitting there going, that's not something that people do. And, I mean, <laughs> I, I spend my time watching the NBA, and that's not something that people do. It's unbelievable. It, he provides more, like, awe-inspiring, jaw-dropping plays than anyone else in college to me other than Zion. Like, the stuff that he does is just unbelievable. He is, like, throughout high school, throughout AAU, he's been a 40% three-point shooter for a long time. Like, he is a very, very good shooter, and he can do it off pull-ups now. He can do it off right to le- or left-to-right crossovers. You know, he has, like, a Dirk fadeaway jumper now. Like, he has a turnaround jumper going over his like, left shoulder, turning to the right. He is a monster shooter. He is seven foot two with a seven eight wingspan. He blocks shots. I think that you mentioned the ability to block jump shots. Uh, seven of his seventeen blocks so far this season have actually come on jump shots. So like he, it's just like guys don't realize how big and how long he is, and he closes down the space so quickly. We'll see if that adjustment changes and guys stop shooting whenever he's around because. Good God, that's a good idea. He, he is just an unbelievable specimen in, in so many ways that is so unique. He can lead the break. He's a really underrated passer, I think. And if you look at Oregon's, like the, the best number that encompasses this so far, and it's a very small sample, it's 321 possessions on the floor. It's like 120 off the floor. When he's on the floor, Oregon is scoring at a 116 offensive rating clip. When he's off the floor, Oregon is scoring at an 85 offensive rating clip. The way that he transforms their offense is the most insane thing that I think I've seen. He, he is a special, genuinely special offensive center talent. And on top of it, I mean, you think about the picture that you just painted for a guy as big as Bull Bull is because he's a, a credible, proven shooter. He has a, a very good handle for somebody his size and his passing instincts are great. And so you have all... And, of- and you throw in that, into there... No, go ahead. You might be saying what I'm about to say. No, go, go, you can do it. It's fine. You know where he, you want to go. So he is... Like Rudy Gobert, Mo Bamba, like standing reach size. Right, 
it's unbelievable. Yeah, and so you think about what when that is the base of a guy before his twentieth birthday. Think about what you can build on top of that because you already have you already shown instincts, a skill base, and so then. You talked in the piece about how, you know, like the Dirk fade and a couple of the other things that he he even has some of those in his toolbox now, but he can get better at those. And also because Bull Bull's skill set, unlike a lot of other big men who are offensively skilled, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to being ball dominant. So like comparing him, let's say to Jaleel Okafor and Okafor, I mean, I think there were a lot of paths where he could have been a much better NBA player than it looks like he's going to be. And injuries sapped him of some of that and a lot of other things. But Bull Bull fits in the modern NBA. So he's a big man who's offensively skilled, but you're not saying they're going, oh, he has to be the hub. He has to be where everything goes through. He can work as a lower usage option. He can work as a moderate use option. High use, probably not yet. He's not that He's not that guy. But you don't need your center to be a high high usage option. So he, right. can, be, he can be a piece in the machine that, because of his ability to space the floor, makes life easier on opponents without being ball dominant. And offensively, I would say that combination of skill is more valuable than some of the elite offensive players we've seen at center over the years because you can use that around a much larger collection of talent. And when you're drafting a player, that's what a team is looking for because most of the teams that are bad enough to draft Bull Bull aren't thinking about his fit with their current roster. They're thinking about their fit with the guys they're going to be acquiring and drafting over the next three years. And that, to me, is a big part of why offensively, and notice that I'm emphasizing that word, he is so intriguing. So, yeah, I mean, let, let's kind of jump into the defense, though, and why I don't think he is really like a contender for the number one overall pick right now. He's a very slow twitch athlete, first and foremost. Like he is – I think he's actually improved at Oregon. Like he has gotten better than what he was in high school. But he's like a slow twitch guy who will like fumble passes sometimes and uh, doesn't react to what's happening around him quickly. And it shows up in two spaces. So – First, let's talk about the rim protection. You know, I mentioned that seven of those 17 blocks so far have come on jump shots, right? Because he's standing so far away from jump shooters to try and be able to make up the space if they drive on him that he just kind of extends his arm out. He jumps and he blocks shots. I don't really think that that's going to happen a ton in the NBA just because NBA shooters just tend not to get their shot blocked all that often so that means only 10 uh, he has only 10 blocks in if i remember correctly it's six games uh in traditional manners right so this is not a guy that right now in my opinion is as good a rim protector as his measurements would indicate him being he's a late constant late rotator uh if he rotates at all he sometimes gets a little lazy he's in like pretty poor condition in my opinion some of this is Oregon playing him 30 minutes a night when he probably shouldn't be playing 30 minutes a night quite yet in his career so like he gets tired out on the floor a little bit easier but like he's just not in great condition and sometimes that leads to lazy decisions on the floor he's not like this crazy high motor player his motor has improved since he's gotten to Oregon no question he's gotten better at it he was a guy that in high school the reason I had him at like 14 or 15 on my initial big board was like, this guy is like a, a motor problem. I don't know if I would say he's like a problem with his motor right now, but it's, it, the stuff is there. And that's like all interior questions too. And like, it doesn't even get into the fact that his center of gravity is so high that guys that can get low and get lower than his center of gravity because his legs are so long, he just gets pushed back and, you know, pinned against the rim with ease and to the point where he can't really even contest shots at the basket sometimes like Luca Garza is a good post player for Iowa 
and he's big and strong and he's a sophomore so he's not even like a ton older than Bol Bol. He is a lot stronger and more physical and just capable of pushing him underneath the basket and, you know, causing problems for him as a player. And these issues pale in comparison to Bowl in space. Like Oregon has to play zone right now because he, he just can't guard it all in space. Um, he, he really can't. He struggles so badly with it. Uh, that like you look at any number about Oregon's pick and roll defense and you look at anything, uh, any tape that you watch on him, he is just an incredibly bad pick and roll defender right now. And that's only going to be exacerbated in the NBA where, you know, you, you have to guard out in space. Centers have to. Teams will take significant advantage of it. Now, there are ways to counteract that in a lot of ways, obviously. The other, the other thing I should mention, too, is Oregon's transition defense has been pretty bad this year as well. Uh, I think in large part, not solely because of Bull, but he's often the last guy down the floor. And I, I think it's worth mentioning that it takes a little bit longer to set up your transition defense with Bull on the floor. There's ways to combat this, though. If he gets drafted to Portland, like I, if I was Portland, I would have Bull in the top five of my board because – like, despite all of these questions, Portland plays a scheme that would allow Bull to basically drop in pick and roll coverage. And they tend to just have their center retreat often. Like, they don't have their center go out and really try and aggressively slide with offensive players out on the perimeter. Because they do that, his length would really actually work in their system. He would just contest and make life difficult for NBA players. Uh, just because his wingspan can stretch lane to lane and he is so long that he's a legit impediment at the basket. A uh, couple of other teams that I think make sense in that way, like Utah uh, with Rudy Gobert there, they play that way. Um, the Clippers have played this way under Doc Rivers this year. I'm trying to think who else. Like Denver used to play this way. The, oh, the other team that does this a lot this year now is Milwaukee. Milwaukee is maybe the best example of this scheme working right now in the NBA because they have allowed fewer shots at the basket and have allowed a lower percentage of the basket than anyone. And basically they just drop John Henson. They drop their center, uh, Brooke Lopez, if it's Brooke on the floor most of the time and just let him kind of take up space in the middle. So there, there are ways to counteract what Bulls weaknesses are in space. But it's all situational. He needs more than anything to go to a fit that works for him. And to me, it's not even like roster fit. It's not the players that are there already. It's scheme fit. He has to go to the right scheme and go to the right coach. So there has to be synergy between the front office and the coach to understand, hey, this is what this guy can do. This is what this guy can't do. We need to make sure that if we're drafting him, we're putting him in a position to do what he can do and not make his life more difficult. Yeah, and there was one play in a, in a video that you put in the piece that was just – it drove me completely insane, but it, it was a good depiction of kind of how this can happen with Bull. So there was a play where it was a high pick and roll, and typically if you're going to have the big fade back there, they fade back, but then they're parallel with the baseline. So And their their goal is to be an impediment if the guy gets by, and you know, you're, you're going to give up some pull-up shots. That's totally fine. As you said, there are successful defenses that do this, Milwaukee being one of them, Portland being another. But for whatever reason, and I will never for the life of me understand how this happened. Instead of standing perpendic instead of standing <laughs> parallel to the baseline, yes. Bull Bull is standing perpendicular to the baseline and just watches the guy drive right by him and go to the basket. And you're sitting there going, Why? How did this happen? Like it's it's 
it's impossible. Like, you're sitting there going, oh, you just aren't doing anything. And, like, it, it reminds me sometimes of, like, every once in a while, I, I've brought up Marquise Chris on this podcast. Every once in a while, he'll do that, too. I was like, you see him do something, and you're like, there is no cogent explanation for this. And... I was just sitting there with that play going, oh God, like I'm trying to imagine what an NBA coach would do. And I do not know you would know better than I. Granted, I am a Manute Bull is a part of the reason I'm a basketball fan. I wrote a chapter about him in my book. So I'm hoping that Bull Bull can figure all this kind of stuff out. But you're just sitting there going, this is going to take a lot of work. And it, it, there is very good evidence that with Bull Bull, the juice is worth the squeeze. But every once in a while you sit there and go, oh my, it's going to be a lot of squeezing. Yeah, I think it's going to take time for sure. Uh, he, he is really, really is going to take a lot of effort and, and it's going to take a lot of energy to figure out all of what makes it work with him. You're going to have to have a great strength and conditioning program. You're going to have to put him on a program specific to him. It's just going to take a lot of, a lot of time. You know what I mean? It's going to take a lot of effort and yeah, I'm with you. I think that for a team picking between number five and number 10 in a draft that is showing to be quite weak at this stage in that range, like I have DeAndre Hunter at number five on my board right now. And I think he's like a good fourth or fifth starter in the NBA. Like, it's probably worth it with Bull to take the risk on upside. The other part of the equation for Bull is that I think, at granted, he has his flaws and, th- and those will be there. But as a second unit guy, if that's where it gets to, a lot of his disadvantages just won't be as big of a deal because the teams just don't have as much talent on the floor. And so, yeah, I mean, he could still get beat in some of this pick and roll stuff, depending on how they're going to structure it. But maybe you can kind of get around that. And then offensively, he would just be such a great piece to get everybody better. So maybe I, I, his floor is low, but I think that there is some value in that even as the league is going but then the other downside of that i was just thinking out loud that we're seeing second units being where these back to the basket centers are starting to live and he would have a lot of trouble with those guys so maybe that is less of an advantage than i'm thinking yeah i'm not real sure where his floor is yet because a guy like this who can shoot like this kind of think the floor is still like backup center just because he really really can shoot like even if nothing else translates he is a seven foot two guy with a seven eight wingspan that you can play drop pick and roll coverage with maybe it's a second spot like maybe the first team that signs him like doesn't work out and second spot signs him as like drop pick and roll coverage guy who's backup center who shoots threes and spaces the floor like he's seven foot two and is a 40 percent three-point shooter i mean there has to be a role for that guy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I do absolutely know what you mean. It, it's going to be crazy. But let's talk a little bit about the rest of the board and kind of where where things are moving. You talked about how the draft is looking a little bit weak, a little bit top heavy, however we want to describe that. And so want to go through some of the guys that are moving up and two that I, I know you have been, you were high on originally, but have been moving up anyway, are Kevin Porter and is it Ja Morant or is it Jay? Ja. It is Ja. I like that better. It's just like Ja Rule, baby. I, I like Kevin Porter. I talked to Kevin Porter yesterday. He is a very nice kid. I liked him a lot. He is a special creator with the ball in his hands. He is kind of a herky-jerky game that also is explosive in a lot of ways. He told me the reason that that herky-jerky game developed is because he kind of tore the patella tendon in his left knee when he was a sophomore in high school. So he had to learn how to, you know, play without leaping basically. And it developed in him this ability to really finish around the basket from a variety of angles and be able to, you know, score uh, and get separation from changing paces and changing 
kind of what he does all the time. And, and what you see now is with the explosiveness back, like he gets, he gets five feet of separation on st- like step backs on, he can go like right to left crossover, left to right crossover, step back, Dame sidestep into a jumper. And he generates like six feet of space. And you're just like, okay, like this, this is real. If he can become a guy that is a really consistent shooter, he has a nice low release point, great ball pickup, really, really does a great job of making his game work for him as a pull-up guy. He's like a 35% three-point shooter right now, probably in that range, maybe a little bit better uh, as he gets healthy, and that's part of the problem so far. He's been battling a couple injuries. I think he had an elbow injury in the preseason. Right now he has a quad contusion. Uh, if we get to see the full Kevin Porter experience, I mean, shit, that guy is he is, he is a special creator. But the thing that I will note with him is it's still not all there yet with everything else. He is – he's tough. He's physical. Like he's a former football player. He – he embraces contact. He doesn't mind defending. I just don't think he knows where to be yet defensively. He doesn't have great instincts yet defensively. Additionally, he's a good passer when he wants to be a passer. He just sometimes doesn't pass the ball because he's such a good scorer. Uh, it's kind of like what James Harden did early in his career, and Harden figured out how to eventually make the passing ability work for him. There really is a lot of Harden in his game um there are there's a lot of a lot of players in kevin porter's game but like you you watch him he's six six he has a huge frame he's grown two inches in the last year he might still be growing up to like six seven at some point like he is i i don't know man that guy if you told me kevin porter had a better nba career than rj barrett i would believe that in every way his ceiling is his his ceiling is the roof to quote Michael Jordan. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch him at some point just because, again, a guy with an unusual combination of body and skill set, that's always something I really enjoy and that he could fit together with a lot of things, especially if he can buy in. And I generally think that somebody as young as he is, that you can teach them at least the basic defensive stuff. Maybe... Maybe he's never going to be that like preternatural instinctive defender. You never get into that range. But if he's gifted offensively, that's not as big of a downside. And, and you can you can work with that. And then, I mean, there are a lot of other guys that have been. So Ja Morant, small school guy, really. It was against, was that against Alabama that he had a really big game? Yeah. And I mean. Athletic team, um, like Alabama is, I'm sorry. Like Alabama is full of long athletes who can theoretically close down space on him. Didn't happen. <laughs> well, and remember, the, like there, there were times in when Alabama played Trey Young's Oklahoma team last year. That was, I think, that was one of those games where he disappeared in the second half of memory serves. And so to see, uh, yeah, Her- uh, Herb Jones is like a six foot seven kid with a seven two wingspan who can really defend out on the perimeter, like kind of a kind of a sneaky NBA prospect just because he has no offensive game right now. But uh, defensively, like you could put him in an NBA game right now, and Herb Jones would probably be okay. So for Morant, is he more of like a, a curious? It's always hard when small school guys. I mean, he goes to Murray State. Is he more of like a curiosity that could end up being a much better player, or do you think that he has a higher floor? Maybe. <sighs> so so Morant in this game against Alabama dropped thirty eight points, had nine rebounds, and dished out five assists. Um, through the first, he had a triple double in his game against Missouri State. Uh, he had in his first game of the season. 26 points, 11 assists, and five rebounds against Wright State. Like, he's a monster in every way. The problem with him right now is turnovers. Uh, turnovers are a significant question with him because 
he gets and part of this is because Murray State is just I mean, they're good for a mid major school, but they're a mid major school. So they don't have like a crazy amount of shooting around him, so the floor condenses very quickly around him. And it ends up being a case where like he'll get occasionally ripped, he'll get caught in no man's land, he'll make these like Superman passes that uh, probably are not really great for him to be making to to describe how important he is to Murray State's offense uh he's taking 42 per, 42 and a half percent of their possessions right now that is first in the NBA if you compare that to Trey Young last season at Oklahoma uh Trey Young was at 38 and a half percent of Oklahoma's possessions so like John Morant is doing genuinely everything for Murray State right now. Um, and despite that, he still has a 63% assist rate, which is bonkers in every way, and a 63.7% true shooting percentage as well, which is a really good sign. He's improved as a three-point shooter a little bit, I think, this year. Um, he's up to 36.4%. Uh, he's always been a good free-throw shooter, so executives kind of think that he's going to be a shooter at some point. I, I don't think he's really a curiosity. I, I think he is like maybe a top 10, like top 15 pick. He's a, he's a lottery guy for me right now. He is, he is special. And the reason that he's special is the way that he can create separation. He is a lightning bolt on the floor. He doesn't have to change speeds to change direction. Um, he can go like, behind the back crossover at basically the same speed he's going downhill toward the basket. And it's so rare for guys to be able to do that. Like he, he can get past just about anyone on the floor at any time. That's fascinating. And you talk about like we've, uh, over the years, you know, we've done a lot of these. Those are the guys who can who can translate. Like if you can if you can move, if you can create space without losing speed, then you can succeed against higher level competition. And he did. I mean, obviously, he did against Alabama. Somebody else I wanted to talk about because I don't know how much we're going to talk about over the next few of these is Darius Garland. Unfortunately, you know, yeah. so freshman year, Vanderbilt has a, I believe it's a meniscus injury, and it looks like he's going to miss the rest of this college season. So he faces a pretty big decision because it's probably from what I, from what I've heard, he's probably on the lottery fringe right now. I always say, if you're a first round pick, you should go other than certain extenuating circumstances. So my advice, even without knowing his game, particularly there, but what, where, where do you see his decision and what, what are his strengths so far? So I, I talked to him two weeks ago when Vanderbilt came out to LA here and they played USC and I wrote about him. Um, I, I really like him as a human being. He's very mature. He, I asked him about like the one and doneness of it all. And he said he actually is someone who really enjoys school. He's going to school for like broadcasting and Vanderbilt's program down there. Uh, very emotionally intelligent kid, smart kid. He, he likes being there. Nashville is home for him. I, I don't know if he's going to declare or not to, or not declare. Like I, I think that it's genuinely up in the air. He, he is someone that I've really enjoyed. Uh, getting to watch though. He is just a lightning bolt out on the floor. He is so capable of changing speeds and changing direction. And he's a guy that like studies constantly, he tries to add and tinker to his game. He's a great pull up shooter. He's just small. He's six foot two ish, I would say. Has long arms, like a six five, six six wingspan. But he's very skinny. He's put on like fifteen pounds since he's gotten to Vanderbilt. But like he's still skinny even with those 15 pounds. The defense is a concern. He's not a very good defender. But he is one of those guys who I think can be 
like his floor is probably something like what DJ Augustine has been in his career so far. Like I'd be surprised if he's not at least a backup just because he's so emotionally intelligent and is so intelligent about the way he goes about trying to improve his game and uh, what he already has in his toolbox already. So he's one of those guys that I think is going to be able to create his own shot because he's a great change of pace, change of direction guy. He's smart. And there's just a lot, there's a lot there to really buy into. I think he, he's a, he's a really good player. It's just now the question is, what is, what does he do? Does he decide to stay in Nashville for another year and enter a draft in 2020 that is somehow some way expected to be worse than this draft or does he decide to declare and see what happens And the other part of this is now that there are 2020 recruits that are trying to like reclassify into the 2019 class because they realize how bad the 2019 class is like Anthony Edwards for my money is the best player in high school basketball either him or Evan Mobley he was a 2020 kid who recruit who uh, reclassified into the 2019 class the day James Wiseman decided to uh, commit to Kentucky so there's all of that as well we'll see how healthy he is he, he just needs to be healthy enough to go through workouts as long as he can do that I don't really think the injury affects his stock because he's been identified for multiple years now as a high level prospect NBA teams have seen what they need to see out of Darius Garland and that's why you do your work early check out these guys so that if they have a an injury that you don't think is going to affect their long-term potential, you still know how they are as a basketball player. And that's why NBA teams are in high school gyms when they or when they, they get access to whatever they can they need to because you never know what you're going to need to rely on. Somebody else I want to talk about just because our, our friends, John Cavoni and Mike Schmitz, just moved him up on their board, and you know that I've loved him since I saw him at Adidas Nations years ago. My boy, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who is having a pretty good year. Yeah, he had a rough last couple of games, but he's having a pretty good year at Vatek. Yeah, Nikhil's very interesting. Uh, he is someone who started the year very hot last year, if you remember correctly, too, and kind of flamed out later because he wasn't he like he just couldn't close games for them last year because he was incapable of defending at a high level. First four games were all over 20 points. That included a big win over Purdue and a showdown matchup between him and Carson Edwards. The last two games, specifically against Penn State, a game that Virginia Tech lost actually it was their first loss of the season. Um, he only scored 13 points and you know was five of 11 from the field. Wasn't particularly awesome in any kind of real way he lives on the edge in a lot of ways because he needs to be like a 40 percent three-point shooter i think and he's been right around 39 from the nba or from the college line so far which is a good sign he's improved his free throw shooting this year that's a good sign um he's certainly improved as a defender more than anything this year like he can at least deal with physicality in a way that he couldn't deal with it at all last year. And that is absolutely critical to his future. The other thing too is he's always been a guy who can like kind of run some point. He can be a secondary ball handler. He's really improved in that way as well. He's just more able to embrace contact this year. He's able to accept it and play through it. Whereas last year was so skinny that I think he really struggled with it a little bit. 4.2 assists this year versus only 1.8 turnovers. He's a, a very, very smart player who knows how to play the game. He's just not an athlete and he does have length and, you know, he, he's improved his frame. And I think that we'll have to see what, what still comes defensively to me. He's still more of like a probably, you know, bottom half of the first round guy, I, I would say, because I've additionally moved him up. I have him like near the end of the first round for me. His skill set, if he can shoot it, he's six foot five, can shoot it and can handle a little bit. In this draft, that's probably a first rounder, given how much this draft lacks depth. Yeah, and 
Nikhil, what what intrigued me originally with him was this idea that his basic skill level, and that's why the stuff you said about defense is a little bit concerning, fit in with an NBA role player, and then the idea that he could then build on top of it. So he could hit threes. It wasn't necessarily reliably at that point, but he was pretty good at it. And then he defended his own position. The guy that I compared him to at the time in my head was Danny Green. And that's like, obviously, that's like ceiling play. Danny Green's amazing. But that idea and him getting more comfortable through contact on ball is definitely a positive. But defensively, is is he has to make an impact because that's always what a player like him is going to need to do. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. And, you know, we're already over an hour of the way into this podcast. So I feel like the, the, the best way to do this, because you've watched so much more, is who has stood out to you? Like, if, if we're telling the story of the first month of the college basketball season, who have we not mentioned that is important to, to talk about for listeners more from an NBA perspective? So I think that I, I would bring up two guys. Um, one is Jarrett Culver out of Texas Tech. He's a guy that hasn't necessarily, like, made a huge leap on my board. I had him at 19 to start the year. He's, like, right around 14 or 15 for me right now. But he's made a big leap in his game, and part of that, part of where I had him earlier in the season was mostly due to the fact that I thought that it was possible that he could make this leap in his game. Um, he's averaging 19 points, five rebounds, and four assists for a Texas Tech team that's unbeaten and has beaten all of its opponents by double digits. And, like, they've played some decent teams. They've played USC, they've played Nebraska, and they've just murdered them. Chris Beard, for me, uh, is probably one of the 10 best coaches in the country and nobody knows a whole lot about him like we, we need to start talking about Chris Beard just being unbelievable at his job uh, and we saw it with Zaire Smith he recruited and identified Zaire and you know figured out this guy is just a, a special player and a special athlete and Jarrett Culver was in that recruiting class as well two guys that are going to be like ranked around 200 in the recruiting class that are going to be top 20 picks in the NBA draft Chris Beard is unbelievable what Jarrett Culver has done this year he's really improved his offensive game uh, he's always been a pretty solid defender but the offensive game he's a really good shot maker he's a really really good creator with the ball in his hands things have slowed down just that amount he was a poised player last year but this year it's it's slowed down just the amount that you need it to for him to become the kind of player that he's capable of being in terms of some other guys that are worth bringing up Brandon Clark has probably made the biggest leap on my board. I was one of the few that had him ranked among like mainstream folks, I guess, uh, coming into the year. I had him in the top 70 or so. Uh, he, he's a first round pick for me, full stop. He is, uh, one of the best athletes in all of college basketball. He can, you know, guard one through five in the NBA. He's shooting two for two from three so far. So his jump shot has made a pretty big leap. I think this is something that just from talking to people around Gonzaga too, and knowing that staff a little bit, it's something they've been working on with him consistently. He's shooting 79% from the field right now. And again, Gonzaga won Maui. So this is not like a quality of competition question. He is just a special player and athlete. And then the critical point of all of this is his defense is unbelievable. He is a 15.5% block rate playing as Gonzaga's primary rim protector at six foot seven, like 225 pounds. He is capable of switching out onto guards with ease. He defensively is just everything that we're looking for from a modern NBA, like four man who can be kind of a um, secondary tertiary offensive piece. He's he's a 38 PER and a box plus minus of 22 right now. And like, I don't even love any of those numbers. But whenever you're talking about 
guys who are such significant outliers in those regards, it stands out. And he is a really, really special uh, talent. Yeah, he was a, a real difference maker in throughout the Duke and Zaga game, but especially late when RJ Barrett went to hero ball, it seemed like he was in the middle of a lot of that. And that's, yeah. you know, with a defensive player, sometimes they have the highlights. And I mean, if he has a block rate, 15 and a half percent, sure. You see that there too, but also a good way of calibrating it is when things are going badly for the offensive team, is there a guy who's consistently around who's consistently doing, cause then you're like, okay, that there's something going on there because Defense is still really hard to evaluate. That That's the way that it works. And exciting to see players like that potentially coming into the league. How, I mean, because he didn't do a ton in that game off the top of my head offensively. Can, do you think that he can do enough to per, to keep teams honest, I guess, would be, would be the thing? Because if you can defend one through five, there's a place for you in the league, even if your offense isn't great. But anything is a big value add. Yeah, there there might be some Robertson there in terms of like him just not being a capable on ball offensive player in the NBA. In fact, like I think there actually is like quite a bit of Robertson, maybe a little bit bigger and a little bit more capable as an interior defender versus a perimeter defender. The jump shot is the question. He has to be able to shoot it a little bit. Again, Gonzaga is saying that like it's really improved a lot. He was a total non-shooter when he transferred from San Jose State. Now he can actually shoot a little bit, which is a good sign. So there's growth potential there. And additionally, like he can put the ball on the deck a little bit, but he's a smart cutter in the same way Robertson is. He's smart at, you know, finding the little dump off area that, you know, makes him such a great effective finisher at the basket uh, and finding a lot of plays at the basket. He's a good offensive rebounder, which, you know, again, how much does that matter in the NBA? It's probably dependent upon situation. But in this draft again like I keep coming back to that this is not a good draft in terms of depth so I keep looking at a guy like Brandon Clark and saying you know what like when you have that good of a defender just take him and hope you can teach him something offensively let's talk briefly about his teammate who has had his star rise as well Rui Hachimura really intriguing offensive player because he's just very comfortable with the shot I think he, he I had heard about him over the last couple of years you've you've t- you and I have probably talked about him offline because of just his skill level and everything else and so he's having a big year already for Gonzaga and was a a, a meaningful part of that win over Duke yeah Rui is you know I've I've written the story on Rui. Like I've, <laughs> I've been talking to him since he was a freshman. Uh, you know, he is a very special player. He's a great human being uh, who is carefree and also really wants to be great at basketball. I- I'm a big fan. I think that he is. I'll say this for him is NBA like perspective. I'm a little bit worried that he's like kind of a tweener a little bit, like between the four and the five, even Um, Gonzaga kind of plays him a little bit as like their small ball center offensively where he's, he sprints down the floor and tries to establish early post position. And he's so big and so strong. That's the biggest thing that I think makes him special. He's a very quick first step, but he's also just got such a great intersection of fluidity quickness and strength he's not like the most explosive leaper but whenever you have that fluidity explosiveness and strength kind of all combined into one player it really makes it difficult for opposing players to deal with you and he can put the ball on the floor a little bit he's improving as a shooter although 
from a mechanic standpoint, I think there are still some questions there. He shoots a little bit on the way down versus like kind of at the apex of his leap. You know, he's 79% free throw shooter last year, 66 so far this year. I think that'll jump a little bit. He's better than that. But extending out to the three point line is where NBA teams are still kind of questioning it a little bit. We'll see. He is at the very least someone who I think can be a good a good scorer off the bench who can defend multiple positions. He's improved as a defender. He does get lost off ball sometimes. He's still trying to deal with the, you know, he's he's not dealing with the language barrier anymore, but you know, he dealt with it for the first 2 years and I think that that stunted his kind of growth as a defender early on. So he's still kind of playing catch up maybe is the best way to put it. He's gotten better this year. His feet still are a little bit heavy, which scares me, but you know, I, I think he's at least an NBA role player, if not if not like a crazy high-level starter. And guys with his capability, I mean, you, you kind of want to give him a chance. And it might take him a few years, as you said, you know, getting better with the language barrier and all that. But I, I like what he brings to the table. One last guy I wanted to ask you about, just because I haven't seen him or really even thought about him much this year, is Nasir Little. He's at a high-profile North Carolina school, but the other one at, at UNC. And I, when you look at his box score numbers, they aren't in the same kind of league as everybody else. But obviously, that you know, it's a small sample size. We're not dealing with a whole much. So I wanted to know what you've seen and heard about him so far. I mean, like I'm a little bit frustrated with the way that Roy is using him. Um, you get Nasir Little. He's like this six, seven kid with a seven, one wingspan and is super strong and plays super hard. He's kind of the prototypical modern college four, right? So Roy decided to teach him the three early in his career because Roy likes to play big. And from what I understand, they're now just like kind of, getting him used to playing lineups as a four man in college. But like that's to me, that, that was kind of a misstep. I, I would have played small from the jump instead of playing big like they have with like Garrison Brooks starting over Nasir Little and Nasir getting under 20 minutes a game so far. And like he hasn't been a perfect player by any stretch of the imagination. Like he's still trying to figure some things out defensively that North Carolina wants him to do. He's still struggling to shoot the ball from distance a little bit. Like he's at 29 or something percent from three. But I mean, you look at his per 40 numbers, he's averaging like 24 points, 10 rebounds uh, over a steal, over a block a game while shooting 53% from the field on a 59 true shooting percentage. Like, play the dude, you know, like it's, it's kind of simple to me. I understand that he's, you know, struggling a little bit and Roy likes to make defense or likes to make freshmen earn it in a way that other coaches don't necessarily play that game. But like, to me, this is like, if the Raptors said, you know, Hey, we, we acquired Kawhi Leonard this year, but you know, Jonas Valanciunas has been in our system for a long time and we want to keep playing big. So we're going to start Jonas and then we're going to play more traditionally with Serge at the four and some, some of the wing players like OG Ananobi can play the three and we'll let Kyle and, uh, you know, some of these other guys play in the backcourt. We'll start DeLon Wright or something like that. And then we'll bring Kawhi off the bench to bring him along slowly. Like that's what, to me, that's what Nasir is in college basketball. He is legit like a Kawhi Leonard like talent compared to the rest of the college basketball talent level. So like, I don't, I don't know what we're doing here. Like I, I, I get it. I get that Roy likes to do this stuff, but Nasir Little's a freak show. Like he's unbelievable. <sighs> 
That's disappointing. And I mean, but fortunately, like we talked about with Garland, there's a lot of footage here. Like the team teams can get the information they need from everywhere else. And so like, here, here's the other thing too. So like, yeah, he's not really shooting from three so far. Okay. You have Kobe White, who's a great shooter. Uh, you have Kenny Williams, who hasn't shot the ball great yet, but he has a history of being a good catch and shoot three point guy. Uh, you have, Luke May, who is a really, really good three-point shooter for a big man. You have Cam Johnson, who's a great three-point shooter as the combo forward next to Nasir Little in lineups. You have um, you have Brandon Robinson off the bench, who's a good three-point shooter. You have Andrew Playtech. You have all these guys like who can shoot the ball. Why are you like you? You have the perfect insulation to allow him to just wreak havoc and play inside as your interior four man and play four around one with him if you really want to. I would play five out and let him drive and have the space to drive. But like, I, I, it's frustrating. I'll say that the fact that Nasir Little is playing under twenty minutes a night is bananas to me. Yeah, that's definitely frustrating. Uh, anything else that you think is important? Or, or, I mean, we've gone through so much that I feel like this is more than enough. Yeah, uh, I want to bring up DeAndre Hunter. Uh, To me, so I have him at number five on my board right now. To me, he is just the most – he's such an easy translation to the NBA uh, in every single way. Uh, he's six foot eight, six foot seven, six foot eight with a seven two wingspan. He's 220 pounds. He defends. Man, is he a good defender? He, he uses his length and his quickness. Uh, he can guard one through four, one through five in college realistically. Like he, he is just an absolute monster defender. He's not much of a leaper again, but he's very, very quick and he plays super hard and he has great fundamentals from playing in Virginia's scheme. Then you throw in the offensive end. I mean, this is a guy shooting 44% from three so far that shot 38% on limited attempts last season, got better as the season went on, 59% from the field so far, 16.6 points, 6.1 rebounds, 2.6 assists, and this is in a system where, I mean, offense is hard to come by because they play at such a low pace. Everything is coming in the half court, essentially, for DeAndre Hunter. And, uh, you know, if you look at his per 100 possession numbers, like 37 points, 14 rebounds, and six assists, everything about his game is translatable to the NBA to me. I, I get that he might be more of like a fourth guy for NBA starting lineups, but to me in this draft, that guy is the player that I am most confident in um, outside of the top four. And so the top four in some order, you don't have to reveal it because in case you have a board coming up, but is that, that, I mean, it's, it's the same top four is what it's been though. Like yeah, I, I mean, I the, the Duke yeah. guys in little. Yeah. Like I, I'm still a believer in Nasir little. Uh, like if, if you told me I'd move Hunter above Nasir little at some point, like, okay, sure. But like Nasir little's a stud. I'm not real concerned about having him differently or anywhere different guys that have like kind of, moved up a little bit. Lugans Dort out of Arizona State. I had him like around 40 early in the year. Same with Trey Jones. I had him around 40. I think they're both like first round guys so far. I think that's Charles Bassey. I dropped down a little bit. If you look at Bassey's numbers, uh, he's like a really, really interesting player who's averaging 15 and 10 right now on 59% from the field. But like nothing, nothing he does to me is like super translatable to the NBA. He's a good rim protector, but like I don't exactly know how it all fits because he's not like the most explosive guy anymore. Yeah, it's it's a weird draft, man. I can't emphasize this enough. Like it's, you know, I, I like the top four. I like Hunter. After you get to there, there are a lot of guys that like I'm more comfortable with in like the you know, 12 to 20 range than like number six or number seven or number eight in the draft, you know, and, and then you get down to, you get down to 20. Like I have Jalen Smith at number 20 right now. 
Uh, I don't know if like he's just he's such a wild card in a lot of ways. I believe in the jump shot. I believe in the athleticism, but you know he's still very very raw. Um, Nikhil Alexander Walker, we've talked about already. I have him like late first. It's a very strange draft that I think is going to be difficult to parse through throughout the year because there's not a whole lot of difference between numbers like 19 where I have Jonte Porter. Like I have Jonte Porter at 19 right now and Jonte Porter tore his ACL a month ago and wasn't a surefire first round pick last season uh, if he would have stayed in the draft. So like that, that's kind of where we're at in this draft. Well, that seems like an optimistic note to end on. So thank you so much <laughs> for taking the time to come on. Yeah, of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Game Theory podcast, which he puts out regularly. And you can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini, S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Love having him on. Love talking about the draft. And I actually watched some footage that I'm going to do it a little bit differently this year. I put all the caveats that I need to put on it. Like, I'm probably only going to watch Duke and the teams that Duke plays. But I'm going to build a, a larger base and still going to go through my later analysis exactly the same as before. I'm not changing any of that at all, and that might involve rewatching games. I don't care. Totally fine to do it. And you won't hear, other than probably on the podcast with Sam, you won't hear my draft or read my draft insights anywhere else unless something particular comes up. So it's a great reason to listen to Real Jam Radio. I actually already do have a tentative idea of next week's guest. It'll be really fun. Hopefully that ends up happening. Continuing Real Jam Radio tradition, I will not say who it is until the episode is actually recorded, just in case something falls through, which it absolutely can and has in the past. That's just the way this business works. You can also check out my written work at The Athletic, my audio work with Nate Duncan, the Dunked On Basketball Podcast, of course, and you can watch the NBA cast. That is the project that Nate and I do where we do alternate commentary for a game. We did Magic Blazers this week, and we're still working on exactly what's coming up in the future. We have also, uh, we'll share the link periodically of what games we're going to do, so you can check that out there. If you want to support this show, you can subscribe, download every episode. It's particularly great with a show like this that doesn't come out on a particular day of the week. You can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. And if you want to be super awesome, if it's not, you can do both. And that is fantastic. Also, biggest thing you can do with this show and any other show that has them is check out our advertisers. Simple Contacts, great place to buy contacts. I was really impressed with it, even though I don't wear contacts. I went through the whole process and was very impressed. Simplecontacts.com slash RealGM20, or you can use that RealGM20 promo code for $20 off. That's why the 20 is there. BetOnline.ag, Podcast One promo code, get you a 50% signup bonus. And TrueCar, great place to buy new and used cars. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. It's way better than Twitter because Twitter is ephemeral. And if you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. And I try to respond. I I make no guarantees there, but I will read. I I read almost all of my emails like that within the first like 12 hours. But I like doing, if I'm going to respond, I like it to be cogent and, and thoughtful because that's how I am. And so those can come a while later, like in certain circumstances, months, but I read it. It's important to me. And I have it when it comes from that email, I have a specific filter in there to make sure that I read it. So I really do that. And I appreciate all of the insight and feedback, whether it is, as I said, good, bad, or indifferent, that really does matter to me. And that is plenty of rambling. I don't need to do any more of that. So can check out Real Jam Radio next week. You can check out all my other work and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 
here today, gone today. The pace of change can be confusing. Then again, it can be inspiring. Every year, Harvard Business School Executive Education helps executives like you build the self-confidence and decision-making skills it takes to thrive on change. Fight change with change. Go. Start by going to hbs.me slash go. That's hbs.me slash go. You want to go. Yes. Go travel. Go explore. Go find a new city. Go reconnect with friends. Go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free, and you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.